The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Presidents, I would have thought, are most likely to do this when they're least accountable, when they're out of. Uh, on their way out of office. They've already lost the election or it's the end of their second term. And the pardon power is supposed to be about accountability. And so it, it would be really bad because the people wouldn't have a chance to weigh in on it. In an odd sort of way, I think the fact that he has as part of his platform that he would pardon himself and a bunch of other people uh, means that if he did win, having that on his platform, he would have... Uh, a stronger argument to make about being able to pardon himself, about being immune while he's in office. I'm Alan Rosenstein, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota and Senior Editor at Lawfare. And this is the Lawfare Podcast for June 20th, 2023. Last November, President Trump became candidate Trump when he formally announced his campaign to retake the White House in 2024. And then earlier this month, the Department of Justice indicted Trump over his unauthorized possession of classified documents. In doing so, it gave him another title, Defendant Trump. How will all of these roles interact with each other at the level of law and just practical logistics? How will the obligations of Defendant Trump interfere with candidate Trump's ability to conduct his presidential campaign? And if candidate Trump becomes convicted felon Trump and also then President Trump, what happens then? To think through these issues, I spoke with two members of the Lawfare Extended Universe, Stephanie Pell, Lawfare Senior Editor and a former federal prosecutor in the Southern District of Florida, and Brian Colt, a law professor at Michigan State and one of the foremost experts on presidential disqualification and removal. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 20th. Stephanie Pell and Brian Colt on how the Trump indictment will affect the Trump campaign and the potential Trump presidency. The first question I want to ask, and I'm going to ask Brian this, is a question that I've actually gotten a lot while talking to reporters over the past week or so about this indictment. And that is kind of a a basic one. What legal implications, if any, does Trump's indictment have on his ability to run for president? I've gotten a lot of questions, especially from folks outside the country who are sort of less familiar with the U.S. system, just kind of assuming that um, someone under indictment cannot run for the highest office uh, in, in the land. And Brian, since uh, you know, you've thought, I think, more about presidential disqualification than maybe anyone alive, um, just love to start uh, by getting uh, your, your perspective on, on this question. Legally, there is really nothing uh, standing in the way of someone under indictment from running for president. We have a few constitutional qualifications run for president, and those have been interpreted as being exclusive. So politically, absolutely. But legally, there's there's nothing standing in its way. And there have been people who have run for president from prison before. So yeah, 
it, it seems odd, but that's how we do it here. As to the the specific charges at issue, that, that seems very straightforward. I am curious though, and, and here obviously we're we're hypothesizing because this indictment has not come down yet, but you know, if down the line there are further indictments specifically around uh, January 6th, specifically around insurrection, do those indictments have any potential disqualifying role? Because of course, um, something you, you know much more about than I do, the 14th Amendment does put limitations on uh, the ability of, of politicians to hold office if, if they have you know, committed insurrection against the United States. Does an indictment, do you think, would an indictment have any legal effect um, you know, prior to any sort of conviction? An indictment? No. 14th Amendment, Section 3, does seem to preclude people who have engaged in insurrection from being president, but it's not self-executing, and it's not clear what it would take to make that happen. Would it have to be a, a conviction in court? Would it have to be a decision by Congress? That much isn't clear. But I think what is clear is, even if a, a conviction were enough, it would require just that, a conviction, and an indictment by itself uh, would, would not suffice. So now that we have that sort of legal point out of the way, let me, let me turn to you now, Stephanie. You are a were, you know, very experienced federal prosecutor, and, and not just any federal prosecutor, but someone who did national security work in the Southern District of Florida, which gives you a particular visibility into not just you know, federal cases generally, but into you know, how the Southern District uh, operates. I'd like to to ask you to sort of walk through the stages of a federal trial, you know, from the arraignment that we saw earlier this week, you know, what we should expect over the next several months, over the next 12 months, with, with an aim of thinking through how that might affect almost as a logistical matter, not as a political matter per se, but just as kind of logistical and practical matter. Um, Trump's ability to do the sort of campaigning that he would would want to do. So let's let's start with you know what Trump the defendant can expect as uh, claims on his time and attention over the next uh, six to twelve months. So as you note, the defendant Trump was arraigned, and as part of that arraignment, the magistrate judge issued something called the standing discovery order. That is a routine thing that happens, and it starts to set out various rules and deadlines. And, and specifically, it, it maps in many ways to Federal Rule of Evidence 16, which requires the government to provide the defendant with various types of discovery. So that's all going to start now. In addition, at I would say in, in the next week or coming weeks, certainly, the judge, district judge, Cannon is going to issue an order for a pre-trial conference and, and scheduling conference where various deadlines are going to be set. I think we are also going to see, which doesn't happen in every case, but the government sooner rather than later make a motion under the Classified Information Procedures Act for a, a pre-trial SEPA conference. And as part of that, move for a protective order to protect this classified information. And that is going to start a rather lengthy process. Now, in, in terms of, you know, how is this going to impact Trump's ability to campaign vis-a-vis -vis his time, 
certainly uh, one of the conditions that was set as part of his ability to be released pretrial on his own recognizance, one of the conditions was that he has to show up for court hearings. So, you know, it is the judge's prerogative to set various deadlines. She, in this case, has to be cognizant of the Speedy Trial Act, which on its face says that after a defendant makes his initial appearance, the trial is to commence in 70 days. Of course, that's not going to happen. There are many things that you begin to exclude time from that 70 days because there's an entire motion practice that's going to happen, both on the government side and on the defense side. There has been a lot of public reporting that you know, we are likely to see in, in the near future potentially motions to dismiss the indictment, motions with respect to prosecutorial misconduct, and other things where the defense is going to sort of try and, and strike at the heart of the case and just get the whole thing dismissed. I don't expect that to happen, but it does, it starts to add time, or I should say take time away from that speedy trial clock, you know, probably in the most complicated national security case that I was part of the investigative and trial team on, by the time the the last defendant was indicted um, and, and, and his presence in the case brought in all kinds of complex classified information procedure issues, it, it took more than two years to get the case to trial. Now, I don't want to make too you know, significant a comparison. These are very different kinds of cases. What I will say is that the complexity of the case is going is going to take time. And in many respects, that that may play to defendant Trump and candidate Trump's favor. So th- there's a lot in there, and I want to uh, break it down into some component parts. So we have the arraignment, um, and I want to talk about sort of what the conditions were and what that says about, you know, the, the trial going forward. We, we have Judge Cannon, and that's a, a, a topic of, of endless discussion, uh, but also relevant here for obvious reasons. And then we have this issue of SEPA and protective orders kind of more generally. So let's start with the arraignment. So I think one uh, observation a lot of folks have made, and I think it's a correct one, is that the government's approach to defendant Trump has been extraordinarily lenient. There's just it is you can one cannot imagine in us any sort of comparable national security classified documents case that a defendant would be you know let off without any bail personal recognizance not to have any travel restrictions to still be able to talk to people about the case let me ask you why do you think DOJ did that i mean is it is it is it just that they 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 want to sort of keep their powder dry because they recognize that they need to be very sensitive about being perceived or of actually I'm interfering with candidate Trump uh, activities, even as they're prosecuting defendant Trump. And, you know, is, is, is how did you, put this way, how did you read uh, DOJ's quite remarkably lenient, you know, so lenient that the, uh, the magistrate judge actually wanted more restrictions uh, than DOJ did, it seemed at some at times. So Alan, you may recall that our colleagues, Ben Wittes and Anna Bauer, recorded a podcast earlier this week where they talked about the conditions of release and they both agreed these were pretty light conditions. And, and, I, and I don't disagree with that. But I do think it is important to remember 
you know, what the point is here and what standard governs what the court is trying to do. And a statute tells us that the court is looking to find the least restrictive condition or combination of conditions which will reasonably assure the appearance of the person and the safety of any other person and the community. Now, you know, the government could have tried to make stronger arguments that under the statute, the defendant was a risk of flight, or there, there's a second prong um, if they established that uh, he was likely to obstruct justice or threaten a witness. Those would have been two prongs. I mean, frankly, those fall under the pretrial de- detention statute. The government did not seek pretrial detention, and I, I, I didn't don't see that happening at this point. But yeah, the government used a light touch, and you know, I think the government realizes this is a rather unprecedented situation. And so, as long as these the conditions can be met, such that the defendant is going to show up to court and you know, not obstruct proceedings, intimidate witnesses, then then you're going, you're supposed to look to find the least restrictive conditions. And I I don't think the government is going to be looking for ways to interfere with candidate Trump running. You know, everybody's situation is is a little different and this one is quite unique. That's very fair. And and I you know, I suspect that some of these issues are not going to be a problem. You know, it's not going to be, we're not going to lose Donald Trump somewhere. He's not going to flee to Russia. I'm sure he'll make it to his court appearances. But I mean, I know he's going to say, I don't have a reason to flee. I'm running for president. Right. Of course. Of course. But it it does seem to me that this, this last part, right. um, Not obstructing justice, not intimidating witnesses. That's going to be really hard. I mean, this gets a little bit into this conversation we're going to have a bit later about him saying things on the campaign, but you know what, right after he was arraigned, he had a press conference and he called Jack Smith a a thug and and you know he talked about fighting uh, you know this again you know he's obviously not on trial for January 6th not yet but obviously that's in the background i mean I, to be perfectly honest i'm curious what you think i'm i'm not super optimistic that trump is going to be able to keep his mouth shut or not obstruct or not intimidate witnesses and i'm just curious i mean do you do you think there's going to be a point at which jack smith just gets really fed up and says look we really tried but you know we we can't have you out there as as a uh, you know, if, if you're going to be like this because you're a criminal defendant. I mean, can you imagine this happening? I, I guess I can imagine it, but I think a lot has to happen before we can ever get there. I think the first thing that the government might do if, you know, defendant Trump engages in conduct that, you know, he would argue is part and parcel of campaigning, but you know, there could come a time where these interests collide. And so the first thing that I think the government would do would be to seek, you know, an order for from Judge Cannon to try and, and prohibit. But, you know, we saw, I think, a little bit of this in the New York case, where, at least from the press accounting that I read, the public reporting, um, the judge in the New York case did not issue any kind of of gag order. What seemed to be concerned about, you know, the the First Amendment issues and interests, you know, running running into uh, the things the government was concerned about. So, so let, let's actually use this to talk about the, these you know, so-called gag orders. 
let's abstract away from Trump for a second. Can you just, again, as, as a former prosecutor, just taking a, a run-of-the-mill you know, case, maybe even a run-of-the-mill high-profile case, as a general matter, what as a matter of both law on the one hand and also practicalities on the other hand, what can or cannot defendants say publicly while they are standing for trial, right? You know, my understanding is that any lawyer worth their salt will, will turn to their defendant and say, you don't say anything, right? You do not open your mouth during this trial, unless I tell you to, and otherwise I will speak to you. And can you just explain why that's so important? Why every single defense lawyer says that? And at what point is it not just a defense lawyer saying that, but the judge also saying, stop talking about this case? (laughs) So I, I have to say, normally when I'm used to thinking about these issues, it's you know, the government has to be extremely careful that it doesn't say anything outside of an indictment or a pleading or in court, you know, in, in, in a hearing that would in any way prejudice the defendant's right to a fair trial. So that's really sort of my orientation to all of this. But <laughs> to your point, the reason that defense counsel don't want their clients talking is that they will be saying, they say incriminating things that then can be used against them. Now, you may get, and, and we, you know, we see that happening with defendant slash candidate Trump. Are, are you saying that, are you saying that there's no presidential campaign privilege? <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe there is, I am not, I am not aware of one, but <laughs> Now, of course, defense counsel have at times, um, I, I don't remember in a case, I'm not recalling in a case that I was involved in, because we're going back many years, where where a, a court had to gag any, so to speak, any any defense counsel or, or, you know, more appropriately, order them not to speak about certain things in public. Because, of course, the defendant needs to have a fair trial. There needs to be a fair and impartial jury be- that you are able to choose. I mean, the the government, you know, has to be able to try its case um, in a non-tainted jury pool, if you will. And so such statements made by defendant or defense counsel can could also have the ability, you know, to taint the jury pool such that you couldn't be be able to impanel a fair and impartial jury. But but would you would you expect that as with conditions of release that it would take an awful lot and we'll have many podcast episodes between now and then if it comes to it it'll take an awful lot before you know the judge in particular tries to limit what Donald Trump can say on the campaign trail about this. Now that that's a separate question than if Trump stupidly says something that's incriminating no one can do anything about that. Um, but on, on this sort of gag order issue, you don't expect that to happen, e- even though he might say some crazy stuff. I don't expect it to happen anytime soon. And I think it would be real, need to be really egregious. I mean, that's just my gut reaction. So l- last question for you, Stephanie, and, and, and then I do want to turn to Brian to talk about the sort of uh, the, the potential President Trump issues uh, that arise if he does win in uh, 2024. Let's talk about Judge Cannon um, and, and what she can do legitimately or less legitimately to sort of separate candidate Trump from from uh, defendant Trump. And, and here I, I, I do want to say, you know, 
Judge Cannon, and and again, I think most people at this point are very familiar with the the, the mess she made during the uh, uh, special master Mar-a-Lago search incident. She's not coming into this with, from my perspective, a lot of credibility. But at the same time, I do want to give her a bit of the benefit of the doubt. And I also want to recognize that I think any judge in her position, right, would be trying very, very hard to separate the trial aspect of this from the presidential campaign aspect of, of this, right? I, I think you could find the most, you know, far left judge and, and they would also be bending over backwards within the law to separate those two things because I, I think everyone has agreed that we don't want to be using the criminal process to interfere in the political process more than is absolutely necessary. So given, given that, what are the sorts of things that Judge Cannon in particular can do, you know, whether it's SEPA specific or just generally to, to, minimize the impact of the trial on candidate Trump? And and at what point would, would you start getting worried that this was going beyond what you would want any judge to do in this situation and, and start worrying that she's maybe not playing it straight in the way that sort of a lot of us began to be quite concerned about during the special master fiasco? As you rightly note, this is a challenging case for, for any judge. You know, one of her jobs is to keep the case moving consistent with all of the other issues that have to be raised and resolved, protecting the defendant's rights. I guess we're going to get into, you know, a question of, is the Trump defense going to ask for continuances for the purpose of allowing him to attend a campaign event? We're not there yet. I do think there is going to be as I noted before, a number of complicated pretrial issues, some of them that relate to classified information, some of them that do not, that are just going to have this case take a long time. And, you know, she has the right to take these matters under consideration and, and give them the due time that they deserve um, for purposes of issuing her own order and dotting her I's and crossing her T's. You know, I would I would start to worry if, you know, she were doing things that were just outside the bounds of of the law as we understood it in either in the SEPA context or or some other issues that that defense might raise as folks have been talking about on the Lawfare podcast and in other places all week with respect to classified information procedures act i mean if she does something again that is just so outside the bounds of the law and markedly unfair to the government sepa provides the opportunity for an interlocutory appeal so it is possible that you know the government time gets added on because if the government has to start appealing these things to the 11th circuit while that may be done on an expedited basis, these things still take time. But there is certainly the opportunity to create delay just through the normal routine and processes that this case is going to have to go through. You know, I would start to get worried again, you know, if her, if her rulings are just, again, so outside the bounds of the law. Given given all of this, given how complex this is, and that we're dealing with you know potentially a bit of a of a I was going to say loose cannon. I did not intend that pun though. I, I'm going to take credit for it. And uh, now that I've now that I've said it, you know, I won't hold you to this. But what's your gut? Do do you think we are going to get a trial b- before the 
the the primary season really you know heats up in i don't know when super tuesday is or when this all starts but i don't know let's call it 10 months from now let alone uh before the election i I guess i'm not super optimistic but but i think you have a better sense than i do i can't see this getting to trial before the election i may be wrong but maybe for for let me give you a hypothetical where maybe could be wrong you know, this indictment deals with a lot of highly classified information. If for the sake of argument, I don't think the government's going to do this, but if it just says, we really have no SEPA issues of, of note, you know, we're just going to declassify all of this stuff. So you cut out a huge chunk of litigation. I, I don't see that happening. We will know more in the coming weeks. But given the complexities of the case as they currently appear, through reading the indictment, I would not be willing to bet money that this case would get to trial before the election. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. 
Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. So let's fast forward, and this is a good opportunity to now pivot to, to Brian. Let's fast forward to the election. Donald Trump is elected president. God help us all. 
what happens at that point? Let's say, uh, let's kind of split this into two branches. Uh, let's say, as I suspect is probably more likely than not, um, that there will not have been a trial. Uh, at the very least, there will not have been a verdict and a conviction and a sentencing uh, before the election, before the inauguration. We'll sort of maybe combine those two. What happens at that point? You know, can can an uh, investigation continue of a President Trump? Does that even matter if Trump can just tell his DOJ to knock it off? Just if what what happens? What happens just to the investigation? And then after that, we'll start talking about what happens with the potential conviction and prison sentence. Well, during the period between the election and inauguration day, of course, there are transition issues. Sort of a a segue between being candidate Trump and and. President Trump would be President-elect Trump, who might need some leeway for uh, the, the work of the transition that he needs to do, but I think less leeway than he would need as a candidate and less certainly than he would need as president. Once he is president, though, then we run into some constitutional arguments. Uh, he, he could argue, first of all, if the Department of Justice wants to continue with the case, um, he, he could argue that they can't. Uh, he could try as a practical matter to make sure that they don't by firing anyone who, uh, who, who tries to move forward with it. But, but even if he doesn't fire them, and even if they purport to be able to go forward with it, despite uh, past practice of, of not prosecuting sitting presidents, he, he can still go into court and make the constitutional argument that he is immune while in office. And that has never been litigated. It would, uh, if, if that's how it's set up, it would get litigated that time. Uh, and, and we would have to see. The, the, the memo that DOJ had saying just uh, that, that they wouldn't got all the attention, but the, the constitutional argument is still there in the background. So that gives him an incentive to, if, if it looks like there might be a trial uh, before he's president, that gives him an incentive to run out the clock. Because once he's president, he has a, not a slam dunk argument, but a, a, a pretty decent argument that would take a while to sort through that they've got to hit pause at that point. So walk us through that constitutional argument. Sort of, Trump famously said that he has an Article Two, and the Article Two lets him do whatever he wants. Uh, presumably, he'd have to get a, a little more sophisticated than that. Um, so, just schematically, what, what is the argument that he would make, and it, what exactly is he arguing? Is it that he is immune? What that he is immune? Absolutely, that he is immune while in office. That has to be paused. That has to be dismissed. But what, what what do you think would would be his sort of best argument here? The standard argument is for temporary immunity. There's not, the, the, there's not really a good argument that w once you become president, everything just gets dismissed automatically. The, the argument is based on, not on anything directly in the text, but rather on the constitutional structure uh, of the presidency. And it sort of goes along with the unitary executive theory that the president alone sits atop the executive branch and the other branches uh, or the, the federalist version of the argument, a state prosecutor doesn't have uh, the power to disrupt that, to prosecute, to uh, haul into court, to possibly imprison 
the executive branch of the federal government is constitutionally problematic. And so the argument goes, things have to wait until he's out of office. Um, and of course, the statute of limitations might become an issue at that point. You, you could say that if, if you're hitting the pause button, you should hit pause on that, but, but it's not clear because, again, the Constitution doesn't really specify. And we've managed to uh, avoid push coming to shove on this issue during the Nixon investigation, during the Clinton investigation. But I, I think given all of the potential criminal liability he's facing in the run-up to the election, if, if he wins, I, I think we would finally get an answer to these questions. And just to clarify, because you did mention the, the state prosecutor point, which I think is an important one. It, it, the argument there is 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 not that the president is the head of the state executive branch. It's presumably that the supremacy clause just generally prohibits the states from taking any action that would undermine the the federal separation of powers. It, 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 I, I sort of I understand the the within federal law the the unitary executive argument that, look, DOJ works for him, so he can just tell them to knock it off. Um, it's a little, to me, a little, actually a little less unclear what the argument is against a state prosecution, except a kind of free-floating concern with state interference in the, the basic functioning of the, the executive branch. Right. It's a, it's a federalism, a division of powers argument. It sort of reduces down to the legal process question. If there is a president who needs to be prosecuted, who decides um, that instead of being president, because you, you the, the argument would go, you can't really function as president uh, at the same time that you're in prison uh, or even on trial, who, who gets to decide that? And the immunity argument goes that Congress decides that, that, that he's temporarily immune while he's in office. And uh, you can prosecute him once he's out of office, and only Congress can hasten that day of when he's out of office. And looking at it from the perspective of the state, it it would be it, w- it would be extra problematic if one district attorney uh, in one state was able to sort of uh, arrest the the executive branch of the federal government. It's almost a McCulloch versus Maryland. Uh, sort of sentiment that the, the the part can't control the whole like that, and it, it's I think helpful to step back from the particulars of the Trump case and think more generally. Pick a president that you like, uh, historical or future. Um, pick a president that you like. None of them were unanimously beloved. Imagine one prosecutor in one part of the country that doesn't. Uh, like this president, purporting to have the power to haul him to court wherever in the country and really prevent him from being able to do his job. That's the argument. That's inconsistent with the supremacy clause, as you mentioned, with the division of powers for for one local prosecutor to have that power. So this raises, I think, a question worth talking about which is you know, whether it is in fact true that the Constitution is sort of silent on on these issues, and therefore we have to engage in some sort of creative constitutional reasoning. 
Because, you know, and, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous bringing this up because I'm talking to sort of the expert on the 25th Amendment. But you know, if you read the 25th Amendment and then you, you read the you know, part of Article 2 that talks about the vice presidency, I mean, it does talk about things like, well, look, the president is sometimes unable, right? The inability, I think, is the word used in the Constitution, to discharge his duties. So it's actually uh, contemplated, right, that um, whether at the federal level or perhaps at the state level, uh, the president is charged, investigated, convicted. Uh, he is therefore in, uh, unable to uh, carry out his duties. No problem. He has a vice president uh, to do that. What, what, what do you make of, of that argument, which you know, at, at the very least has some, some textual basis uh, for it? Yeah, so the, the 25th Amendment argument is, is an interesting one. And I, and, I, and I do address this a little bit in my, my last book on Section 4. But just to break that down, if the president himself says, you know what, I'm not going to be able to do my job and defend myself at the same time. I'm going to declare myself under Section 3 of the 25th Amendment, I'm going to declare myself uh, unable and hand over power temporarily to the vice president until all of this is done and then take it back when I'm ready. Yeah, I mean, that that would work. If he is adamant that he's not giving up uh, one iota of, of power, then section four might come in where the vice president, the cabinet, uh, and if the president fights them, two thirds of the house, two thirds of the Senate can say, no, you've got to, you've got to hand over power while this is going on. But there are two problems, two limits with the 25th amendment argument. I think it's great that the 25th amendment is there to provide a mechanism for transferring power, but that still leaves the question of who decides. Does a prosecutor, uh, a, a state prosecutor somewhere, does the Department of Justice against the president's expressed wishes have the power to force that issue, to render him unable? Is that legitimate? And the second point is a more practical one, and that is if the president doesn't want to hand over power under the 25th Amendment, let's say a court rules that he's not immune and the prosecution goes forward and he says that he's able to do his job and the cabinet uh, and the vice president disagree and he contests that and so it goes to Congress, unless there's that two-thirds in the House and two-thirds in the Senate saying that he needs to hand over power, he keeps power. Uh, the deck is stacked in Section 4 heavily in his favor to the point where it's harder to displace him from power under the 25th Amendment than it would be to just impeach and remove him. And so I find it difficult to envision a situation in which you don't have a majority of the House and two-thirds of the Senate willing to impeach him, but you do have two-thirds in the House and two-thirds in the Senate saying we need to forcibly strip him from power. Uh, strip power from him, I should say. So uh, the the bar is just so high with 25th Amendment Section 4. Now, of course, if he were the sort to say, oh, well, I better hand over power while I'm being prosecuted, uh, then he probably wouldn't be in this situation in the first place. So there's that too. One more avenue, it seems to me, that, that could provide a, a President Trump with relief from being defendant Trump is, of course, the pardon power, which would not apply to any state charges, but, but would apply to federal charges. And, and it does seem to me that, you know, certainly if he has been convicted 
prior to becoming president, or, or even if there's just an investigation uh, ongoing, even if it's withdrawn by his Justice Department, you know, he, Trump thinking ahead to a future administration would I think, almost certainly try to self-pardon. Uh, and I'm curious what what you think the the legality of that is, both sort of on the substantive level, but also on the interesting procedural question of whether or not this is even the sort of thing that a court would want to to deal with. You know, given that the pardon power is generally considered, you know, pretty broad and pretty plenary, and, and doesn't on its face uh, have any exclusion for a, a self pardon. Though, of course, there are good reasons also to interpret it in a more limited way. Yeah, I I think I've been. I've been uh, writing about this since my second year criminal procedure class back in the 1900s. But I, I, I think that, well, my, my standard answer when people say, can the president pardon himself is, well, you can try. Uh, and if he does, then, then we'll find out because there are good arguments on both sides. I can tell you if I were a judge and the case came before me, how I would rule. But I, I long ago learned not to try and predict what the Supreme Court will do. Uh, and I'm glad that I thought about it, wrote about it in the abstract sense, because I think it's important for people to think about this, not in terms of the current case, but in terms of the general principle. Either presidents can pardon themselves or they can't. It's not a different answer if you support the president versus you don't or what party. So the basic argument that he can pardon himself, which he has endorsed, uh, is it doesn't say he can't. And it is a broad power. It is among the least limited presidential powers. It's not doesn't require Congress uh, to approve or empower him. Uh, it's largely exempt from judicial review. Of, of course, this wouldn't be because it, it's not clear that his power includes this. The, the argument against it that, that, that I took out of that Crim Pro class 20 odd years ago is more complicated, but I think ultimately more compelling. And it has three parts. There's a textual part, um, there's a, a, a structural prudential part, and there's a historical part. The textual part, I, I think, is in, in some ways the strongest because it directly confronts this notion that it doesn't say he can't. The Constitution says he can't pardon state offenses. He can't undo or um, preempt an impeachment. Other than that, it doesn't have any limits. So how could you say that there's this in, in implied limit in there? But there is another limit in the text, and that is pardons have to be pardons. Um, and what I mean by that is that if something is inherently inconsistent with what it means to be a pardon, even though the Constitution doesn't say that, we, we limit it. So just as an example that everyone agrees on, because the courts have, have, have said this, a pardon has to be of something already done. You can't pardon future acts. The Constitution doesn't say that. You know, the president can't say, I'm pardoning you for whatever you might do in the future. Doesn't say I can't. Well, it does say he can't, because that wouldn't be a pardon. And so the textual argument is that granting a pardon, which is what the Constitution gives them the power to do, is inherently bilateral. You, you, you can't grant something to yourself. You can't pardon yourself. It just doesn't make sense. I go back to the Latin root uh, of the verb to pardon. It's the same Latin root as the verb to condone, uh, the same root as the verb to donate. You can't make a donation to yourself. 
if, if it says you can make these kind of donations, and you say, okay, well, I'll give one to myself. No, it, it doesn't make sense. That wouldn't be a donation. You can call it a donation, but it's not. Uh, you can't condone your own actions. It just doesn't make sense. It's not part of what the word means. The historical argument is based on what the framers said about it, which is nothing. Uh, when they were writing the, the pardon clause, they talked about presidents benefiting themselves by pardoning their, their cronies, their co-conspirators even, uh, in a treasonous conspiracy. And they debated, well, does that mean we should eliminate the pardon power for treason? Because the, the, the president might be pardoning co-conspirators in his own treasonous enterprise. They specifically addressed that. And the answer that that uh, they, they came to, James Wilson, later Supreme Court Justice, said, if the president does something like that, he can be impeached and prosecuted. And so I look at that and, and say, well, clearly they didn't think he could pardon himself or that would have been cold comfort. Oh, yeah. If he's leading this band of traitors and, and he pardons everyone, um, we'll just prosecute him once once he's been impeached. If they thought that he could pardon himself, why wouldn't he pardon himself in that situation? So either they didn't think he could do it, or it just didn't occur to them at all that it was possible. But it's certainly, you can't look at that silence and say, oh yeah, based on this discussion, they thought that he could, and they were so okay with it that it didn't even merit discussion. I, I just I just can't, I can't fathom that looking at the, at the notes. And then finally, I think most people would lead with this argument uh, because I think it has the most intuitive appeal. There is the notion that no one can be the judge in their own case. You know, pardoners aren't judges as such, but thinking of this as part of the criminal justice process, in order for you to have criminal consequences, the prosecutor, the grand jury, the trial judge, the trial jury, and the president all have to agree. The president can pardon anyone. The, the, the judge can throw the case out. The jury can acquit. In all of the other steps in the process, uh, we, we say you can't, you can't be the prosecutor in your own case. You can't be on the jury in your own case. You can't be the judge in your own case. And so I would say by that principle, you can't be the partner in your own case. You have to rely on someone else, either uh, your successor or your vice president, if you want to hand over power temporarily, but not yourself. And that, you know, like everything else, there's an argument on the other side. You can say the Supreme Court has cited this maxim that you can't be the judge in your own case in all sorts of contexts where they've ruled that someone can't do something self-dealing. Uh, and that's true, but they've also not cited it in all sorts of cases where they've allowed self-dealing. And there are places where the Constitution seemingly... Uh, frowns upon self-dealing in an implicit way, and there are other places where it allows it, like the the vice president presiding over the electoral count uh, under the Twelfth Amendment. All right, Al Gore in two thousand and one presiding over the, the disputed two thousand election. People are objecting, and 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 it, you might say, well, he shouldn't be up there. He, he's he's the candidate, but but he did. The Twelfth Amendment allows that, so. You know, it's typical constitutional law. There's there's uh, flaws in every argument, and you just have to pick the one that's the least flawed. So, uh, as we've been having this this discussion, you know, I've been trying to sort of think about what what might 
top line conclusion is. And my preliminary top line conclusion from listening to both of you um, and your very helpful analysis is that for the reasons Stephanie points out, it's very unlikely that we're going to get a trial, uh, certainly not a conviction or a, a, a result, as it were, uh, before the election. And that for the reasons that Brian has outlined, if Trump, in fact, wins, he's just he's he either is going to just get off completely or at the very least, this will be paused. This will not interfere with his presidency. And therefore, the conclusion that I draw is that it ultimately and perhaps rightfully so in a democracy, hinges on the will of the voters. And that at the end of the day, you know, if we want Trump to be held accountable, whether for the documents, whether for the Georgia interference, whether for January 6th, it will rely on the voters first holding him politically accountable, either in the Republican primary or in the 2024 presidential election. And I'd like to ask both of you, you know, if, if you agree with that and also, you know, if, if you think that among all the terrible options, right, as usual, Trump has put the net country in a world of bad options, you know, this option of ultimately this becoming yet another political issue may be okay or maybe the least bad from a sort of small d democratic perspective. So I'd like to start with, with Brian and, and, and then move on to Stephanie. Yeah, I think, I think it's important to, remember that underlying all of these arguments about pardons and about potential immunity while in office is this democratic notion. Um, the, the reason that the president can't be um, sidelined because one prosecutor says so is precisely because the president is this national figure, the only one besides the vice president elected by the entire country. And um, the pardon power is given to the president because uh, presidents are politically accountable to the whole country in a way that no one else is. So, you know, I I complain uh, about uh, in in my book where I talk about self pardons, uh, or when you look at Nixon contemplating it on his way out of office, presidents I would have thought are most likely to do this when they're least accountable, when they're out of. Uh, on their way out of office. They've already lost the election or it's the end of their second term. And the pardon power is supposed to be about accountability. And so it, it would be really bad because the people wouldn't have a chance to weigh in on it. In an odd sort of way, I think the fact that he has as part of his platform that he would pardon himself and a bunch of other people uh, means that if he did win, having that on his platform, he would have... Uh, a stronger argument to make about being able to pardon himself, about being immune while he's in office. That would strengthen his his claim. I, ultimately, I don't think it would strengthen it enough that I would change my, my long-held views on these questions. But I think you're right. I think the nature of the constitutional issues here and, and, and the nature of the question of who decides keeps leading us back to this democratic principle that the people get their choice. The, the the people get to decide who the president is. Stephanie, what do you got? So that's a very difficult answer to follow. Very, very eloquently expressed. I guess the only thing that I would add is that certainly the people not nominating or electing 
Trump is a much cleaner, less messy resolution to all of this. And, you know, as we saw in the Mueller investigation, there are limits to what the Justice Department or even Congress can do. So I guess I'm coming back to to Brian's eloquent answer. This is really up to the people of the United States. And we we shouldn't give over our power so easily and assume that Jack Smith or or some other prosecutor is going to save the day for us. Well, I think we'll uh, we'll leave it at there for now. But uh, this will continue, I'm sure, to be taking up residence in our <laughs> in our minds for uh, a long time to come. Uh, thank you very much, Brian and and Stephanie. Thank you for having me. Yes, thanks. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osmond of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.